Good evening. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you may be doing, we wish to welcome you to Just Another Conspiracy Show with your host, Jeff Williams. In the past few months, two names have been referenced on this show, and they have a surprising connection between them. You might recall Christopher Columbus, the plagiarist who stole the discovery of the Americas. Remember, he never actually made it to the mainland of the Americas, but rather the islands of the Caribbean, specifically Hispaniola. However, one thing he did achieve is that he can legitimately be called the father of globalism, because he did open up regular voyages between the old world and the new world. He quite literally expanded the horizon of the European monarchs, the places that they had never even heard of before. And curiously, in an age where slavery was well established worldwide and the divine right of kings to rule was established, Christopher Columbus was accused of tyranny and incompetence in his governorship, recalled to Spain and locked up in chains, there to spend a significant portion of his life. Now, Hispaniola, the place where he ruled, is the island we now call Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Yes, two countries that have had a very, very checkered history. We can very easily state Columbus did not send them up on the right foot. Columbus and his brother were actually appointed to rule over this newfound colony on Hispaniola, and that was on his third voyage to the New World. He'd already been there twice, so you might say he knew the way. But they were accused of excessive torture and extortation. Imagine that. In an age when whipping and press gangs were common sights, they were considered extreme. Now, for those of you who don't know what press gangs were, it was an old practice by the navies of the world, when they didn't quite have enough sailors to man their ships. They would simply go into town with the officers, with a bunch of clubs, knock people out, and those people would wake up aboard a ship bound for somewhere and told that's your job you're now lifting that bale hoisting those ropes whatever it might be you're doing that until we get back again this used to be exactly the way that ships were crewed which is why mutinies happen quite a lot and in columbus's case because of his excessive torture and excessive extortation of the people they mutinied against him and sent him home. Now, Columbus did retire under the patronage of the crown, and he returned to religion, the one thing that held salvation for him. And thus, in turn, we can also turn to Cotton Mather, the son of Increase Mather, who lived about 150 years after Columbus. By Cotton Mather's time, the New World was well-established and thriving, and Cotton Mather was a staunch Puritan, best remembered for his involvement in the Salem Witch Trials. 
In his quest to stamp out impurities, which might also be thought of as free thought, he demonized men and women of his own town and forwarded a harsh agenda that allowed torture and harsh treatment to be doled out to anyone that he saw fit. Now, despite popular opinion, no witches were actually burned during the Salem witch trials. There are plenty of other opportunities and methods to torture for people and for execution. The Middle Ages, the 1600s, had no shortage of ways to critically hurt, cripple, or kill another human being. Burning was simply an unnecessary public spectacle. And Cotton Mather did manage to serve the globalist purpose by instituting a framework by which people could be accused and imprisoned with very little evidence, even without the direct intervention of the monarchy, which itself was very remote, across an entire ocean which took months to travel. So Cotton Mather basically established the idea that locals, anyone with local authority, didn't even need to go through the theoretical ruler of the colony. All they needed to do was take his precedent and establish their own law. But Christopher Columbus and Cotton Mather did indulge in one very key common theme. They both participated in the study of eschatology. Now, what is eschatology, you might ask? (laughs) Why, it's the study of Armageddon, the prediction of the end of all things. Not many people know this about these two individuals, but they both repeatedly repeatedly predicted the end of days, twice for Columbus and three times for Cotton Mather. They were taken relatively seriously in their day. Columbus figured the world would last about 7,000 years and traced the creation of the world to be about 5,000 BC. Now, this is a little bit of contrast to our modern count, which says the calendar started about 5778 years ago, as of the time of the broadcast of this show. If Columbus was right in his prediction, and the world began in 5000 BC, the world would have ended in either 1656 or 1658. Now, Columbus published a book of prophecies in about 1501 and he postulated that the world started about 5343 BCE. That would be about 200 years off from our current calculation, but since the Pope reformed the calendar at about 1582, perhaps that miscalculation isn't entirely Columbus's fault. This is a very, very chaotic time for dates and ideas. But the most important thing is he published his polemic, which expressed his views on the world and the prophecies that he said must come true. Not that they would, but that they must come true in the future. The first prediction or prophecy that he made before the actual end of the world would be that Christianity, or rather Roman Catholicism, must be spread throughout the world. Yes, the Church of Babylon the very originator of the Roman Catholic Church, would be the one to rule the world. No other church would do, no local superstition. It had to be the Holy Mother Church that he himself was loyal to. And legitimately, it was one of the oldest Christian religions, but at the same token, Christianity has always seen itself as the one destined to rule the world. Next, Curiously, the Garden of Eden must be found. 
The Garden of Eden was always assumed to have somehow survived the flood, and in fact it was believed it was somewhere out there waiting to be found. Now, this not only is the search for proof of the Bible, which has been an obsession of scholars of all ages, but it is also an archetype, an archetype for the return to the Golden Age. The idea that you could return to a more simple time, when people were more innocent, and with one single church and more innocent people, they, those people would be more right to be ruled over by the tyrannical globalist Illuminati. What a wonderful thing for the father of globalism to have left for posterity. And third, a last crusade must be mounted to regain the Holy Land from the Turks. You might recall we mentioned the Turks last episode. The Turks were presently, in Columbus's day, in possession of Israel and the Levant in general. And, again, this is from Christopher Columbus's own pen. He advocates spreading the domain of his patrons, the king and queen of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand, and indeed, the church of the whole, through the use of force. Yes, the faith must be spread by conquest, which is very much in line with the Illuminati's dogma. And finally, a last world emperor must be chosen. That's right. One person is to be raised up to rule over the whole world. Technically chosen by the people, but also to represent them and rule over them. Now, one, can, one might as well remember that the Illuminati, the Bavarian version, the version that we all know about, was not to be around for another couple hundred years. So, this, these views from Christopher Columbus left behind in his book of prophecies were easily adopted for later times for other people's more sinister motives, assuming Christopher Columbus had any positive ones to begin with. Now, one can easily see the echoes of an antichrist in this tract as it revolves empowering one person, one family, and one religion to be the chosen one to rule over the whole world exactly the opposite of the idea of a savior returning, a messiah who will come of his own accord. Now Cotton Mather himself was no slouch at apocalyptic tracts, and he was incredibly literate. He almost became the president of Harvard University, but he was viewed as a bit too conservative for that, that position. But he was a prolific producer of sermons and pamphlets, and he spent a lot of time spreading his view by, views by the pen. Now, Cotton Mather, unlike Christopher Columbus, was not one to wait for the end of the world. Instead, he predicted it in his own lifetime, and when the end date did not appear, he fearlessly revised it, not once but twice for a total of three doomsdays. In 1697, he preached the world was going to end, but despite his powerful, persuasive powers, the world didn't listen. And of course, Cotton Mather, being the polymath that he was, polymath meaning a man of many talents, he was easily able to convince people around him that he was not wrong, that the end of days was still coming, but he revised it to 1716. And once again, he whipped his people up into apocalyptic fury. 
This is the same man responsible for so many witches about so many sermons about witches, and he was easily able to bring everyone over to his side about the expected end date of humanity. Now, when that didn't ha when that didn't happen, he was still not to be outdone. The darn world kept going, so he predicted one final date. 71336 would absolutely be the end of the world. Well, since we are still here, we can rest assured his calculations were off. And since he was unable to revise them, he died at 1728 at the age of 65. 1736 simply came too late for him to be aware of his errors and correct them. Now, while Christopher Columbus and Cotton Mather are fairly far removed to us from us in time, the doomsday predictions do keep coming. There's hardly a decade, a day, a month, a year that goes by without somebody proclaiming it's the end of the world. In 1910, Camille Flammarion predicted that when the world would, that when the Earth would pass through Halley Comet's tail, the poisonous gases would impregnate the atmosphere, those are his own words, and destroy all life on the planet. Now, at the time, there was a brisk sale in comet pills by charlatans who were always quick to make a buck off other people's insecurities. Now, I point this out in particular because it shows fear is good to motivate people. The fear of Halley's Comet, the unknown, doing something that had never been seen before, caused people to take stock in whatever people might have as a measure to take against it. In the two world wars, 1914 and 1939 respectively, life was rife for predictions of the end times, and the various prophets did not disappoint. After all, who could help but not feel a touch pessimistic by the ruthless slaughter that took place, it, that took place in both world wars? Whether you were a soldier at the front line of a desperate struggle, or a poor civilian struggling to, to, to get by on half a load of bread for your family because of rationing, it would indeed have seemed like the end times were all were due. Imagine being a person in the London Blitz or somebody in Berlin when the Nazi Germany fell. Now, those would be horrifying enough, but after the war, it was the dawn of the nuclear age. Now we had a whole new threat to our society. Instead of us saying, end will come from cosmic sources, now we had the power to do it ourselves. And the constant threat of the Cold War turning hot, was it made it easy to perpetuate the idea that a worldwide conflagration was in the process. After all, it wouldn't take much for an enraged president or premier to decide that the planet deserved to burn for its sins. Yet, after 1991, when the Soviet Union was no more, the threats of the end of days did not stop. Do you know why? Like I said, the apocalypse is big business, and everybody wants to get aboard that gravy train. If you can predict an apocalypse and convince enough people, there's earthly rewards for your, I'm going to call it a delusion. Because perhaps most famously, in 1997, Marshall Applewhite claimed that the end of the world was nigh, and he convinced his Heaven's Gate cult that they would be able to board a spaceship that was coming behind Comet Hale-Bopp. Now, the way that they would get entrance was not by buying a ticket, was not by doing anything in particular except taking their own lives.
Thirty-eight of the cult members unfortunately perished with him in, in fulfilling his vision. Now this shows us how persuasive eschatology can be. If you can convince people the end is near, they're willing to part with anything for salvation, physical, mental, spiritual. They'll give away their wealth, they'll give away their freedom, and even their very lives. The next big catastrophe that we know of was the year 2000, which was again filled with doomsday predictions. But most of the attention was focused on Y2K. I'm pretty sure most of the audience listening lived through that era, and you can recall the strange dual sense about the event. On the lead up, the press was will, was trumpeting how unready we were to face Y2K, how programmers were struggling valiantly to be able to correct this computer problem, and even though millions and billions were spent on it, ultimately not a thing happened. Here we are in 2018 remembering the event. The Y2K virus, well it was never a virus, it was actually a calculating error, didn't destroy the planet. We're still here, everything's still functional, and the internet is better than ever. Now, for those, <coughs> excuse me, for those of you who are not aware, there's a similar alert for the year 2038, but there really isn't as much time and money or attention being spent on it in present. It's a very similar problem to the Y2K problem. Yet, despite this supposedly big threat, very few people have heard of it. Perhaps it's so far in the future, the globalist news media doesn't feel they can present enough of a panic upon the, the general population. Or perhaps there's something more significant to that date. As we know, without computers, humanity absolutely would have suffered dramatically back in 2000. And even more so at present, goodness only knows how dependent we'll be in 2038. Yet, with all the constant patches and bug fixes, we can only presume that the people at the software companies are invisibly taking care of the problem. However, as we've seen many times, depending on big business to take care of a problem when it's not in their interest generally doesn't happen. So, pencil in 2038 as a possible actual doomsday. Well, not the apocalypse taking out all life, but definitely a very, very bad day that is on the horizon. Now, the, other, the next big doomsday after 2000, as many of you will remember, and I trust everybody remembers, was 2012. There's even a film made about it to give the audiences a tangible feel of what a worldwide disaster might look like in, 2013, in 2012 had there been an apocalypse. But once again, the Doomsday Demon failed to show up and we're still going strong six years afterwards. We're still here, yet people keep searching for new predictions. The seer Nostradamus, who publishes predictions in rather confusing quatrains, is always good for outlining a good date for the end of the world. Nostradamus was a curious individual, who unfortunately loved to use puns and idioms of his own day in his work. So things that were intent originally intended to be vague, and perhaps even whimsical, are now totally obscure, lost except to those who are experts in both French and Latin. But Nostradamus is so widely quoted precisely because we have this fundamental desire for all humans to try to predict the end of the world. 
Perhaps it's our way of trying to directly contradict God. God rebukes us several times not to attempt to ascertain the end of days as is known only to the Creator. In Daniel 12, cha- sorry, chapter 12, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal that book. Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. By this he means, until the end of time, people are going to run back and forth and try to figure out the end of days, but nothing will happen. Now Mark, in chapter 13, verse 32, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Notice that he even says, the Son, the Messiah, the Savior, doesn't know the day of the end of, of the end of days. The Messiah is not privy, perhaps to retain his status as a symbol of hope and redemption to the people. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God warns us that predicting the end of days is folly. He hasn't given us that knowledge. He hasn't given us that ability. Even the Quran makes a singular statement that stands out very clear. And he, he being Jesus, shall be a sign for the coming of the hour of judgment, and therefore have no doubt about the hour, but follow ye me. Follow the guidance and instruction of Allah. This is a straight way. Quran, Surah 43:61. In other words, only when the Messiah returns will we be able to figure out that the end of days is near. And until then, any attempt to predict the end of days, other than scientists discussing the day that the earth will actually be consumed by the sun, you can make a reasonable presumption that that anyone who's telling you the end of days is either a Satanist, an unbeliever, or someone who is perverting the word of the Lord as revealed through scripture. Now, there are ones behind the deception of the church, the ones who stay hidden and attempt to manipulate our each and every thought. Because one of the surest emotions to manipulate people with is fear. Fear of the future, fear of death, and fear of a world that will will continue to exist without you around. That's right, people cannot conceive of their own non-existence, and therefore don't want to believe the world will continue after they're gone. It's simply beyond the psyche of a lot of the human race. This was detailed in Ernest Becker's excellent book, The Denial of Death. And believe me, the criminal globalists have read that book and use its insights on a regular basis. They know that the fear of non-existence, the terror of death itself, is at the basis of human psychology and they will do whatever it takes to ensure that fear is always our constant companion, whether making sure that your local church has sermons on the end of days, whether encouraging survival preparation, or simply by putting an end date out there and giving a lot of media publicity. It's the fear of the mass media school shootings, the stories of environmental catastrophe because you put your coffee cup in the garbage instead of recycling. By the way, here's a hint. They can't recycle your coffee cup from Tim Hortons in most municipalities. But no matter what, your future is in doubt, and because of that, you better give in to them and let them make the choices for you. Now, 
At the beginning of this year, the President of the United States and the North Korean government were rattling their jaws about how big their nuclear buttons were. We know in any nuclear exchange, any reasonable person knows the United States could handily defeat North Korea. In fact, North Korea doesn't even have the capability to have its warheads successfully re-enter the atmosphere yet. They would burn apart harmlessly if North Korea tried to strike a United States city. But that was never the North Korean plan. They knew any nuclear strike would be suicidal, just as the USSR used to know, and Russia and China currently know. Kim Il-jung is depicted as crazy in the West, but he is smart enough to recognize that his few bombs would fall prey to the U.S. nuclear defense umbrella. And one other thing that he does know is that an electromagnetic pulse detonated above the United States would cause crippling damage to all of North America. By taking down the electrical grid and most transportation, the USA, Canada, and Mexico would be in a great deal of trouble. And indeed, this is why, while I'm saying a worldwide apocalypse with the second coming is unlikely, prepping a little bit of a, a few items for survival is a good idea. A little bit of water, a couple cans of food, doesn't need to be a much, just add one extra can next time you buy, put, buy food, put it at the back, a bottle of water when it's on sale, put it away. Doesn't need to be expensive to prep, it can just be little things, making sure you have a little bit handy. Because... While I am doubting the apocalypse, I do know that emergencies happen. But, by taking, er, but North Korea was never only concentrating on one strategy. The Illuminati always try to keep your focus on the center of their attention. Meanwhile, they're moving the chips behind the scenes. The latest sleight of hand, in fact, involves North Korea making an arms deal with Cuba. Yes, Cuba, who is nominally neutral toward the United States, but they're also very friendly with the so-called rogue nation of North Korea. Now, Cuba is already taking weapons deliveries in North Korea, like th things like surface-air missiles, and those missiles are even being shipped through the Panama Canal. I don't know what customs regulations are in place in Panama, but one missile can look very much like another when it's under a tarp, and military trade between countries is pretty much unregulated. Cuba and North Korea have no trade embargo between them. Supposedly, Cuban sugar is being traded to North Korea for weapons, so the sugar that isn't going to United States ports because of the embargo is instead heading for a willing trade partner in North Korea that is heavily heavily in need of food sources and food stock, and in return it's able to ship something it has a great deal of, weapons, to Cuba. It's a win-win deal for the two countries, and it would be relatively easy to put restage the Cuban Missile Crisis. After all, there's nothing new under the skies for the Illuminati, so another Cuban Missile Crisis would be right up their alley. Or, more frighteningly, a bolt from the blue attack from the underbelly of the Americas, right where there are not a lot of defenses for the United States. This is all a game. You see, not only the doomsday predictions, the shuffling of weapons, the trading of countries, it's all a game to keep, to keep the threat shifting from one part to another, to keep us all guessing where the next big danger is coming from. As was said in the Bible, you will not know when the end of days comes. But 
most attacks humans will be able to survive it will not be the end of our species there will be those blessed people and i do say blessed life is always a blessing they will be the ones that emerge from that disaster and rebuild be it from a horrific horrific damage to our infrastructure or something a little more major but the apocalypse people who trade in apocalyptic belief are defying the scripture and defying god himself so there's no need to gaze into your crystal balls or scry through ancient tomes to answer the question of when the end of days is coming it's all a trick an illusion to keep you in fear to keep you under control and keep you away from the truth of the of the creator who does not want us to live in fear we only have one choice and that is to stand up to the people who would cow us into submission stand up against the hidden ones stand up against the illuminati it is the only way forward now stand up is the theme of just another conspiracy show performed by pipe choir and it continues to inspire us to stand up against the criminal tyrants who would oppress us. Special thanks to a View From Space Facebook group and Spooky Weird and Cool Facebook group, both of which I recommend to your wholehearted perusal. If you enjoyed this show, please consider purchasing a book authored by its host. The Secrets of Solomon by Jeff Williams and Cemetery Island by Jeff Williams are both available now to be joined shortly by Age of Ashes, and Blood, both of which are going to be released before the end of this year. But most importantly, thank you for welcoming just another conspiracy show into your home today.